Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. EJ, it's a gorgeous Tuesday evening in mid-June as we're recording this. We're celebrating the Chiefs today. It is Kansas City Day. Uh, I have a Ben Holiday old-fashioned, a little bit of rosemary in there, a little bit of spice demerara in there. You've got Ben Holiday on the rocks. They're not sponsored by us, but we wouldn't say no if they if they came to us and said, here's some money, please promote our whiskey. Uh, they're a local KC uh, distillery, so if you're in the area, go check them out. Obviously, we're not. We brought this back with us when we went to KC, but uh, if they ever distribute to LA, I would very much enjoy it because they make great stuff. Yeah, fantastic local distillery, oldest distillery west of the Mississippi. Got a chance to go to their their setup um, just outside KC. Beautiful rolling grounds, uh, and they produce a beautiful bourbon. We have a lot to go over for the Chiefs today. Uh, not a whole lot went wrong last year, but it wasn't entirely a perfect season. There were, believe it or not, some things to improve upon and they had a pretty darn interesting offseason in their own right. So we're going to go over every move they made, every little tweak they've made to the roster. We're going to talk about what worked last year, what we think is going to work this year, schematic nuances, the whole shebang. And ultimately, we're going to talk about if we think they can be the elusive repeat Super Bowl winner. So with all that, Jay, roll the intro. Welcome back to the Bootleg Football Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Coleman. That is my lovely co-host, EJ Snyder. As we mentioned before, it's Kansas City Chiefs Day. They are the reigning Super Bowl champions. Uh, Dodged a couple bullets along the way, but in the end, they were the survivors on top of the hill. Uh, Lots to go over today, but first things first, how are you doing? I'm good. We have uh, local KC product and some holiday bourbon that we both really enjoy. First got introduced to it uh, at the Shrine Bowl by our good friend BJ Kissel, who runs uh, Kansas City Sports Network. And then uh, I was lucky enough to get to go to the distillery right after the draft, which is, again, gorgeous if you ever get the chance to go out there. Just a beautiful, beautiful setting. Great people. So it's kind of hard to go wrong. We got great football to talk about. We got great bourbon in our glasses. Um, we have great weather for the first time this trip. About and, damn time. Uh, yeah, about damn time. And uh, just really nothing to say no to. So 14-3 and three record last year, obviously first in the division. By the way, if you go back to this series that we did last year, we were one of the few, apparently, that had the balls to bet on noted underdog Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes. <laughs> Everybody left them for dead at this point last year because surely... They would never recover from losing Tyreek Hill. Never, ever. People were picking every team except the Chiefs to win the division last year. Uh, On this podcast, we did not do that. We held firm, and we said, until proven otherwise, they are still the team to beat, and they were. Yeah, spoiler alert, we might 
do that again, but hang on. We'll tell you why. <laughs> uh, overall, 2022, the way it worked out. You've said 14 and three, first in the division. Sterling home record, seven and one. Sterling road record, seven and two. Last five games, steamrolled into the playoffs, five and oh, unblemished. As you can imagine, the effectiveness summary for this team is also pretty darn good. So we're taking EPA per play. We're talking about rush offense, passing offense, rush defense, and passing defense. Then we're talking about points scored and points allowed. We take those six numbers. We look at their league ranks versus all their peers. Rushing offense, fourth. This is the one you think might be a little bit lower for Kansas City. Nope. They had a great rushing offense last year. Passing offense, number one spot with a bullet. There's good reasons for that. Well, there's a good reason for that. Multiple, I think, if you dig deeper, but at the top. The reason is the reason they win the Super Bowl. Yeah, it's number 15. That's right. It's Patrick (laughs) Mahomes. Rush defense, 19th. When I say and have said previously in this series, you do not need a top rushing defense to win in the modern NFL. Case in point, 19th. They did just fine. Won the Super Bowl. Slow them down. Pass defense, 17th. A good number. Not a great number. But when you have an offense to compensate, this is the whole team building concept. Uh, you can cover up a lot of flaws with the uh, number one scoring offense in the NFL. Almost 500 points, 496 points. That'll cure a lot of ills on defense and elsewhere. Points allowed, 369, which was good for 16th. Again, middle of the pack. But that gives them a points differential of plus 127. That's a lot. That's a lot. That is a huge, uh, basically, sort of, we screwed up eraser, right? You could just. That's like a touchdown a game ish, something like that. Which, I mean, if the average NFL game, as of a few years ago, the average margin of victory, I think, was three and a half points. So they're doubling that. Doubling that up. So, as you would imagine, the Chiefs score is very good in terms of a power score. We take those six numbers of their league ranks. We divide by six. Their power score is 10. Yikes. It's very good. It's not the best in the league, but it was well enough to get them into the tournament. Again, so is a 5-0 mark in the last five weeks and to win it. So a very good raw score. We're going to stack those tomorrow when we do our AFC West summary. And we are halfway through this series, which is something to celebrate. And we'll see how it Again, stacked up against all their peers. Uh, spoiler alert, it's pretty darn good. And I think that uh, they're kind of the poster child for uh, quarterback matters <laughs> because in terms of raw score, they were the seventh best. Remember, it's golf rules. Lower score is better. Uh, they were the seventh best in the NFL in terms of raw score because it takes into account every component of the team. But they were still the best team in the league because where they were better than everybody else is what matters the most. It's quarterback, it's head coach, and I guess to a degree it's wide receiver one, even though their wide receiver one's a tight end, but still, like as far as weapons go, Travis Kelsey is one of the greatest weapons, regardless of position, that's ever played the game. So when you have that kind of core trio together, and oh, by the way, Chris Jones is there too, um, yeah, it, it just... It makes for a very hard recipe to beat, and there's very few teams that can keep up with them. Uh, Philly got very close. They got very, very close. They were only one or two plays away from maybe winning that game, but ultimately, 
the difference is Patrick Mahomes. I liken him to the LeBron James of the NFL. And a lot of people have said, ah, he's more like Curry because of the stuff he can do uh, as a scorer, Stop. as a shooter. Stylistically, right? sure. But no, it's it's not... Like, that's not the comparison. I'm not saying, like, can you do ridiculous shots or ridiculous passes like Mahomes. I'm talking about the versatility, the leadership, just being the core of a franchise. Like, uh, for instance, if you look at their passing stats, and, and we kind of pull these advanced passing stats to give context to the EPA, it wasn't the flashy bomb it down the field offense that a lot of people associate with Patrick Mahomes or again, as like a Steph Curry comparison to like prime Splash Brothers, it was more, you know, between zero or between the line of scrimmage and 10 yards past the line of scrimmage. Like it was a very quick game oriented offense. They were the leaders in the clubhouse in terms of 12 and 13 personnel looks. There was a lot of tight ends on the field. Um, you know, it was a, a yak based offense. Like if you look at their personnel statistics and you look at their average depth of target, uh, I mean, they were. 19th in average depth of target at 8.7 yards. They were 30th in terms of percentage of their yards that came through the air rather than after the catch. 55% of the yards came after the catch. And so you you kind of look at, okay, a lot of big bodies on the field, quick passing game, yak-based. Like It's essentially a lot of the same numbers as what we saw with Brock Purdy uh, in San Francisco last year. And a lot of people don't attribute that style of offense to Patrick Mahomes. And the reason why I compare him to LeBron is because Mahomes can run that style of offense and be better at it than literally everybody else. Just like LeBron can be a distributor. LeBron can be a scorer. LeBron can do whatever, right? Patrick Mahomes can do whatever as a quarterback and make it work. That's why he's the best. Mahomes is a dominant player and that adaptability is part of that dominance. And I think how good he is tends to overshadow the fact that it is not just Patrick Mahomes and 51 or 52 other guys. If you look at the statistical categories for the Chiefs, like, yeah, we know Mahomes is great. 5,250 passing yards. But you mentioned Kelsey, 1,338 receiving yards. Nick Bolton, over 100 tackles. Chris Jones, 15 and a half sacks. Those are all like top of the league numbers for their respective positions. And I think a lot of that gets lost in the wash sometimes when we're looking at Mahomes and how good he is, how versatile he is, how I want to say almost scheme proof he is. You mentioned the loss of Tyreek and how much that had people sort of wringing their hands that the Chiefs were going to fall off the pedestal because their main piece of offense was gone. They all kind of just shrugged and said, not really, because Patrick Mahomes is so versatile and it tends to overshadow how many other good players there are because they're not necessarily in what we think of as the most traditional roles that are the flashy ones from around the NFL. Again, their leading receiver, he's a tight end. He's got wide receiver numbers, but he's not a, they don't have the big alpha wide receiver. That guy mm-hmm. left, um, you know, you think about their defense and it's like, oh, it's just, they're just scoring 500 points. They're just outscoring everybody. Oh, their defense is pretty solid and had some stars on it. And a lot of that just gets drowned out by Mahomes' light because it's so bright. And as it should be. As it should be. Like, he's the face of the NFL for a reason. Easily. Um, One more passing note I want to note. 2.91 seconds average time to throw. That was the ninth, quote-unquote, slowest. Uh, Another reason why you can see how valuable Mahomes is is because both of his tackles last year got beat quite frequently. (laughs) Regularly. Uh, Both Orlando Brown and Wiley. 
um, not just being among the top three to four tackles in terms of pressures given up, but even in terms of pressure rate, because obviously the Chiefs threw the ball more than most other teams, even while being a very 12 and 13 personnel heavy team. They threw a lot, right? Because they're the Chiefs. But even just in terms of pressure rate allowed, Brown and Wiley still gave up a lot. And I mean a lot, a lot. Yep. Wiley improved and Brown improved throughout the year, but for like the first 12 to 13 weeks, it was pretty rough. And so Mahomes constantly had to basically dodge bullets in the pocket and escape and extend plays and do stuff literally on his own, where, again, even though he wasn't bombing it down the field, he was still creating explosive plays pretty much by himself at times. Uh, at least him and Travis were by themselves at times. So his yards per attempt was still first in the league at 8.9, despite having a low average depth of target, despite you know constantly having to extend plays to three, three and a half seconds to get the ball out. That's just how brilliant he is. Uh, looking at the run scheme specifically, that uh, was kind of the the other part of the equation here. Again, it's a it's another uh, set of numbers that really reminds me of, say, San Francisco, the Kyle Shanahan uh, type tree. They were seventh in outside zone. They were 11th in inside zone. They were 30th in duo. They were 18th in power. Fourth in counter, which you see commonly with outside zone heavy teams, is they also are, are pretty heavy on counter. The Chiefs specifically run counter a lot out of shotgun. Like that that seems to kind of be one of their bread and butter runs. Like if they if they get the right look for it, um, they are perfectly content to pull either Tooney or Trey to just go absolutely obliterate some 245 pound edge. Uh, and they they love them some counter. Uh, they were 26th in draw and 25th in pin and pull. So again it's it's similar numbers to uh, a Shanahan type of run scheme or a Stefanski or a Kubiak or a McVeigh, whatever, right? Uh, except just less volume. Like they didn't do it as much in terms of raw carries, but the percentages are roughly the same. And I think they do counter specifically in Kansas City to feed Tooney and Trey. And we don't usually typically use that language for guards, but oh yeah, they, they let their guards eat. Um, Offensive linemen love to run block. You get to fire off the ball and hit the guy across from you, regardless of the run. In this particular case, they have two incredibly skilled, you know, interior players, guards, who are both very good on the move and both very large human beings. Trey in particular loves to hit people. He loved to hit people in college. He's also very good at it. And they let those guys off the chain on those runs to keep them engaged, to get them fired up, to sort of pay off all those pass block sets that they have to do instead of, hey, absorb, absorb, absorb. Hey, go deal some punishment. Go deal some contact. And they dial it up, and you can see Mahomes just kind of hand it off some time and be like, he's not looking at the runner. He's looking at the lead block. And he's like, okay, sweet. Go get him. <laughs> it also helps when their running back is Isaiah Pacheco, who his running style um, – you ever seen The Patriot with Mel Gibson? Yes. Remember that scene where he's just running through the British lines with the tomahawk? Yeah. Just like an absolute freaking wild man mm -hmm. killing everything that moved. That's Isaiah Pacheco as a running back. Yeah. It's just carnage. And it's from every angle. Like, I, I, I don't... I don't understand how somebody can run that angry. I'm like, oh my God, Isaiah, who hurt you? Like he wants to inflict pain on every single carry. He never wants to go down. 
it's very Marshawn Lynch-ish. And I'm not saying he's Marshawn Lynch, but in terms of just the ferocity that he runs with, he doesn't get as many carries as a lot of other running backs in the league do, but he makes every one of them count. And I just love watching him play because of that. Maximum speed and contact. Like, that's his game. If you had to sum it up, if you had to say, what's Pacheco as a running back? It is maximum speed and contact at all times. He he has a little bit of what we would call pace or patience, but not very much. And as soon as he can pull the trigger, run as fast as he can, and run into somebody as hard as he can, he's going to. He's awesome. I just love him. He, he's such a fun player to watch. Even if he's not like the best running back in the league, he's definitely one of the most entertaining backs in the league. Uh, moving over to the defensive side of the ball now, and I, I'm not a Spags expert. Um, you know, we leave that to Craig Stout over at KCSN. Uh, he's, uh, he, I mean, he's a defensive analyst. He analyzes the whole team, but like his his calling card is he talks about Spags every week and and different coverages and different blitzes and tendencies and everything like that. So follow uh, Craig Stout if you really want to become a Spags expert. I hope to one day know him as well as Craig does, but I still consider myself to have studied quite a bit of Spagnuolo defenses over the years, even going back to his time with the Giants. This was a very quintessential Spags defense. Heavy on cover two. Heavy on cover two. They were third overall in the league in terms of calling cover two at 23.4%, which was a hell of a lot more than they called cover three. They were dead (laughs) last in cover three. And I I feel like that's kind of become almost the Chiefs calling card on defense over the last five-ish years in the Spags era is we are perfectly content to play two high safety looks. Uh, Remember, they were sixth in quarters as well because we know that as long as Patrick Mahomes is our quarterback, you're going to have to throw. They are not going to stick in cover three all in an effort to stop the run because they know that if you're running the ball 30 times, you're probably losing anyway. They're going to play cover two in a bunch of wild different ways, by the way. They're going to move their safeties all over the place. They're going to drop corners where the safeties are and have the safeties come down and play where the corners are. They're going to call two invert. They're going to call two roll. They're going to call two robber. They're going to call Tampa. Every version of cover two you can think of, they're going to call it. And every version of quarters you can think of, they're going to call it. And if you're running into that all day and you're getting four yards at a time, thank God, please do that. Because at the same time, our quarterback is putting up 35 and you're fucked anyway. And that is what the Chiefs offense, or rather the Chiefs defense does, and it works for them. So even if the EPA numbers are kind of eh, they're always going to win because their entire goal on defense is to slow you down, get a couple turnovers, and let the quarterback do his thing. This is team building and team strategy that goes hand in hand. These are not silos, offense and defense, that are going to play independently of each other. They play very dependently. And when you have a quarterback that you know and an offense that you are very certain is going to throw up roughly 30 a game, if you can keep the opponent to 21 to 25 a game and just frustrate them, (laughs) you're going to win almost every time. And they are very confident in their offense, and they play defense in a way to support that. Not to gamble with it or to say, we're going to try and win it on our own. We're going to do our part to support what we know is the primary unit, but it's a synergy. It really is. It's the two sides playing together. And there are teams that do that in the NFL. 
probably none better than the Chiefs. There are teams that don't do that in the NFL where the offensive coordinator has sort of one idea. The defensive coordinator is not playing a similar way or style. Yes, of course, it's the head coach's job to kind of mix and stir and say, hey, don't fight. We need to cooperate. But there are teams that play very independently on offense and defense. That is not the Chiefs. It's just a very synergistic franchise from the top down. Everything they do makes sense. That's why they always win. Everything they do has a purpose. Uh, one last note on the defense in terms of blitz percentages. Very unspagnolo like I would say, <laughs> compared to, um, say, his Giants tenure, for instance. Yes. Uh, they did not blitz very much. Like, you go back to, to his Giants days, and I, I only say this because the NFL gave me, thank God, uh, Andrew, if you're watching this, thank you. Uh, the NFL gave me access to Spagnuolo tape from his Giants days. Mm-hmm. He blitzed a shitload. Like, even though he had that front four and the NASCAR package and everything like that, like, they brought pressure a lot. Uh, and even in past Chiefs years under Spagnolo, they were really, really nasty with pressure. Didn't do that a whole lot this year. Uh, in fact, the only time where they really brought a lot of pressure was on third and short, uh, where they were seventh in terms of blitz rate at about 47%. And almost all of those, and I went back and I, I looked at all of them, Almost all of them were Legereus need coming off the edge. Like that's one of their main short yardage calls is Legereus, go get tackles for loss. And it worked a lot for them. But if you go into third and medium, they were dead average in blitz rate. And if you go in third and long, meaning third and seven plus, they were 26th. They did not blitz a lot last year, which was very surprising to me as somebody who over this summer has done a lot of work on older Spags defenses. They were also nearly dead last in stunt percentage. They didn't call a whole lot of stunts. They were 31st in that, which was even more surprising. Because, again, going back and watching the Giants' days, they stunted on damn near every third down. They only did it uh, 26% of the time last year with the Chiefs. So he has adjusted some things in terms of how his pass rush packages work, even though the coverages are largely the same. The best coaches adapt in the NFL over season, week to week, over time. And this felt like a significant mellowing of Spagnolo's tendencies. Mm -hmm. Because as a younger DC, it was all about the fangs. Mm -hmm. We're going to bring it. We're going to force you to do things. We're going to hammer you with our front four. We're going to collect. Typically, a Spagnolo defense really depends on a front four that is uh, borderline very good to dominant. Ravenous. Right. We are going to assemble guys that are better than yours. We are going to invest very heavily through the draft and free agency and go get those guys that we know can bring pressure consistently one-on-one who can win physically. Wasn't Has never been a guy that has favored smaller rushers, uh, quicker guys necessarily. He wants guys that are at least mid-sized to typically larger, powerful, longer, um, and very, very aggressive. And... To look at these numbers, it feels like a departure. It feels like a change. And if anything, like I said at the top, feels like a mellowing. Feels like him saying, all right, I can do other things or I can do similar things with other parts of my defense. I don't have to do what I did for the vast majority of the younger part of my career, which is assemble four bloodthirsty axe murderers and just (laughs) let them come after you early and often. Keep in mind, when Spags came up, uh, he was in Philly under Jim Johnson, the great Jim Johnson, 
who, uh, you know, if you ask anybody who knew Jim Johnson and you say, uh, what was his favorite blitz? The answer is yes. Like it's they always, always. Yes. Every, every play, please. And so just kind of seeing him transition uh, in the later stage of his career has been really interesting. And you know what? Maybe it's because they had a bunch of young guys and the more guys you send in pressure, uh, the more different complications that creates on the back end. They had a bunch of rookie DBs. Maybe they felt like just, hey, let's play it straight. Let's play coverages that these kids know and understand because uh, fire zone can get kind of wonky on the back end with young guys that maybe don't understand the rules of it yet. So maybe this year they kind of go back to, to blitzing a little bit more uh, when these kids have, have another year under their belt, which, by the way, last year's draft. My God. Yeah, they hit it. They hit it for sure. Uh, and, you know, again, shout out to our buddies over at KCSN. Uh, we know most of those guys and have for a while on the football side. And they were extremely high on last year's draft. A lot of people called them homers. Uh, we liked a lot of their later picks, thought there was potential there. And I'd say even the sort of ceilings that we set for those guys in their first year, a couple of them exceeded. Well, they had what, like seven rookies that started at some point? Like it. It was pretty insane, and and Brett Veach kind of transitioning over to the power structure of B is probably as good a transition as we're going to have. Brett Veach, I have had issues with several of his draft classes. Sure, it's it's a very John Schneidery type <laughs> of roller coaster experience, right? There's been great years and there's been horrific years. Last year, I think was one of the great years. It did rebuild the base and. It feels, you mentioned Schneider, and it feels like over the last couple of years, he is turning to get back to some of maybe the earlier drafts he had. He's in year six now. Andy Reid, head coach extraordinaire, I would say, one of the top two coaches in the NFL right now. I would even maybe say, and forgive me if this is too reactionary, top five coach ever? Ooh, I don't know about ever. If we're going ever, the word ever always scares me. I would say maybe top 10 coach ever. Well, that's longevity. safe. Yeah, it's safer without going back and look at the entire list. In terms of folks that are coaching right now, if you get to a third coach in a fantasy coach draft and you've not yet called Andy Reid's name, I'm going to need a reason <laughs> why. Um Maybe you just don't like the fact that he's, you know, into cookie recipes or something, but there's no football reason not to have his name called in the first couple of coaches off the board. Coordinators, uh, assistant head coach, as many teams have these days, but this one's near and dear to my heart because I believe this guy should be a head coach, and I believe that for a long time. Assistant head coach and special teams coach is Dave Tobe, uh, was a longtime special teams coordinator in Chicago uh, during the Devin Hester years. Uh, was he there in 06? Yeah. In the Super Bowl return? That was him? That was his unit? How about that? And he moved with when Andy came to Kansas City. He was one of the guys that got recruited, and there have been multiple power shifts in Chicago, so he was available. Um, he has been Andy's right-hand man largely since his arrival in Kansas City or just after. And um, I think the assistant head coach title is reflective of how, in what regard, Andy holds him uh, as a contemporary, as someone that he can really rely on. And it's not a name that comes up. And I don't know if it's because it's strange because some of the most successful coaches currently in the NFL were special teams coaches. Harbaugh was a special teams coach. And it, it shows that, I mean, special teams coaches are in a unique position of knowing the entire team. 
They know guys on offense. They know guys on defense. Obviously, they're coaching special teams. It gives them a unique sort of, you know, 30,000 foot view of an organization. But typically when we get to head coach, you know, cycles and seasons and hiring, hiring cycles at the end of the year, it's, hey, who had the hottest offense, right? Or who had the number one defense? And the special teams guys, even if they have been excellent over a sustained period of time, don't tend to get those opportunities. I hope, I hold out hope that one day Dave will get his opportunity because I think he's worthy of it. He's a great, great football coach. So um, very deserving of getting the assistant head coach. I mean, just look at what happened with Rich Passaccia, right? Like he turned the Raiders around in very tough circumstances in a really hard season. A lot was going on with the Raiders. Um, and they went on a run for him, and he still couldn't get a job. And I think the disrespect towards special teams coordinators, despite everything they have to do, working with largely young players that yeah. don't know what they're doing yet, that are fresh in the league. And a continually <laughs> rotating cast of characters. I mean, that's the job as a special teams coordinator is your, your unit is going to change every week. It's the mm -hmm. bottom third of the roster, typically in an NFL setting, not so much in a college setting, that's just going to, throughout the season, continually churn, and you're going to have to get those guys up to speed. And if you make a mistake, it's super high profile because it and can you cost have, you a score. what, eight chances a game to make an impact? Like, it's it's a tough job. It really is. Unfortunately, some rule changes this year uh, maybe neutered what they could do a little bit. It was a dumb fucking rule change I still hate. But... <laughs> You know, overall, I do think special teams coordinators just don't get the love they deserve. They do a really important job, a very important job that never, ever, ever gets credit. Uh, in terms of um, assistance, I see Joe Collins on this list. Very good defensive line coach. One of the better defensive line coaches in the league, and he is very well-traveled himself. You handily skipped the offensive coordinator position. Yeah, I kind of did that on purpose, not going to lie. I kind of figured you might. I didn't to want trigger to trigger me. you. I yeah, know. I, I Too late. You were having a good day, EJ. I, I didn't want to speak his name. <laughs> I was. We got to talk about Matt Nagy. So Matt Nagy was a quarterback's coach, um, famously in the first years of Pat Mahomes' development, right? Nagy was the quarterback's coach in the year that Mahomes is drafted into the NFL, the year he sits uh, the year both, you know, Andy and Matt get together and shape what Patrick Mahomes is going to be, teach him the rules of the NFL. He gets hired, becomes the head coach of Chicago, uh, I think was a very good leader. I really liked Matt Nagy in the CEO role. I absolutely despised Matt Nagy in the offensive coordinator role. And he was an offensively successful coach, ostensibly from Kansas City that came over, could never replicate that with the Bears. And honestly, really, I think, was more detriment to the Bears offense overall in his three years as head coach. I think he would have been more successful to find somebody to do that role and to step back. And in fact, he was throughout pieces of his tenure when he stepped back and handed the reins to Bill Lazor and said, run it. <laughs> for three games. Three games. <laughs> and the Bears rolled off 30-plus for each of those three games. And then he said, no, see, I know it works. And he took the reins back, and it didn't work. Matt Nagy out in Chicago. Andy Reid hires him back immediately. Um, gets to flash his Super Bowl ring in pictures last week and is the offensive coordinator for this team going forward with longtime offensive coordinator Eric Bieniemy moving on to have the same role with the Commanders this year. One of the reasons I'm high on the Commanders, which we'll talk about when we get to the NFC East. 
it's interesting. People will go one of two ways with Nagy's influence on the offense. One, Andy Reid's calling the plays doesn't matter anyways. He's sort of glorified QB coach or a consultant. It's not going to change anything. Or <laughs> we could see a serious downgrade in the offense because the enemy's not there and whatever his role that has been very valuable over this sustained run of chief success has changed and he's been replaced by Nagy, who we don't think is his equal. We'll see how it plays out, but it is a substantive change because all of the recent KC success has been with Eric Bieniemy as offensive coordinator, and he's moved on. Let's be honest. It's Angie's offense. Yep. You know, regardless of who's in the offensive coordinator title, obviously there's input. Like, EB had a lot of input. EB had a lot of influence and, I would say, situational control. Uh, and of course, Nagy last year also had his own level of input. And but it's Andy. It, it's it, that's that honestly is my conspiracy theory. Again, I do not have any information on this. I don't have any inside sources on this. My conspiracy theory of why it took the enemy so long, or why he never got a head coaching job, was because everybody around the league just assumed that it wasn't his show. And so he went to Washington to prove that he can run a show. And I'm not saying he can't. I think he can. Um, but I think he had to get out from the organization to prove that he can run the offense and that he knows what he's doing, which it seems bullshit that he has to do that when Matt didn't and when Doug didn't. True. Uh, but that's just kind of what it is. I, I just think the rest of the league thought that yeah, but he's not really calling the plays. And so now he's like, fuck, I got to go to the fucking commanders to prove that I can call plays. And work for a defensive head coach so that there is no doubt that if I the know. offense the, the is hoops good. that black coaches have to jump through is just, it's ridiculous. and Wildly unfair. Again, whole whole different topic we can get to in a different show, but it it does strike me as odd that Peterson was able to get the job being in similar circumstances. Nah, he was able to get the job being in similar circumstances. But no, no, Eric Bieniemy can't get hired anywhere after like yeah. 10 years being there. Year after year of sustained success. So it'll be a fascinating sub-story to watch Bieniemy's, uh turn in Washington and whether or not he can do that. I believe he can. I hope he can. Uh, but we'll see. And whether or not. Nagy has an increased level of influence or hopefully for Kansas City fans, I really do hope this for you, that it is Andy's show and we see absolutely no degradation in the Chiefs offense or Mahomes' effectiveness because it's truly Andy calling the plays um, and we're just not going to skip a beat. I hope that's the, the case because I really like watching Mahomes play and the Chiefs offense operating at peak efficiency. Um, so let's hope that continues. We already talked about defensive coordinator Steve Spagnuolo. Other notable coaches on offense, Andy Heck, the offensive line coach, 19 years as an NFL coach, developed some excellent young talent into a very good offensive line in Kansas City. We've already spoken a couple of their names. Uh, had a 12-year playing career in the NFL. Strangely enough, played for the Bears and the Seahawks. Mm -hmm. And his son, Charlie, is a tackle for Houston. Mm -hmm. So, again, lots of connections. His son, Charlie, is also a gigantic human being. Yeah, we got to see him <laughs> in person at the Senior Bowl, and he is a big dude. So, shout out to Charlie. You mentioned Joe Cullen, the defensive line coach. He's led a unit that's consistently 
creates pressure on opposing QBs. And they have had a rotating cast. They have had some stalwarts who've been there the whole time, but they have also changed up the edges. They have changed up players, interior players. Um, Cullen has kept that unit operating at a high level. Uh, I believe he's got even more toys this year. So be fun to see his sort of continued excellence is what I'll call it uh, with that new talent this year. And other former players and coaches, Andy Reid on the staff. Andy is a big proponent of guys that he has worked with in the past, giving them opportunities. Um, Todd Pinkston is the running backs coach. Pinkston was a wide receiver, a famously skinny wide receiver that played for him in Philadelphia long before being a Slim Reaper was any kind of like league uh, trend. Uh, Pinkston ends up getting a chance to coach running backs. Dave Merritt is coaching the defensive backs. Rod Wilson is a defensive assistant. Alex Winningham, defensive quality control. Uh, he is former Utah head coach's Kyle Whittingham's son. I was wondering if that name was... Whittingham. That's the yeah. family tree for sure. Uh, and Dan Williams is an offensive quality control uh, head coach. Or Sorry, not head coach, but quality control coach. His dad, Ted, spent 20 years with the Eagles, including 14 under Andy as head coach. So it's a family business. So You know, if Andy knows you, it's a decent chance you can get some kind of spot on his staff. And many folks start out as a defensive quality control or an offensive quality control analyst uh, and move on to other positions in the NFL. It's like a it's like a farm system at this point. I mean, that's how he started. Absolutely. I mean, even going back to, you know, when he was at BYU, like he, even as a player, correct, he was getting groomed to be a coach at you know when he was uh, in the BYU days, um, and he was there as a player as an offensive lineman, by the way, uh, in the midst of the invention of the air raid. Yep, people don't realize that BYU basically invented it. Uh, and God, who who else was there? Norm Chow was there. Uh, got uh, McMahon was the quarterback, I think, right? Correct. Yeah, and, and then Steve <laughs> I was Young waiting came for that. In. Yep. Yeah, man, the the 80s BYU. Just look up like the the coaching staff and the players that were there. It's nuts. It's like the cradle of football. Yeah. So many connections from those teams. So, and Andy is basically just trying to pay that forward and has throughout his career in Philadelphia, it hasn't changed in Kansas City, and now he's starting to stretch into this very long tail of creating a, a huge coaching tree in his own right but it's he's feeding the lowest end of that too it's not just his coordinators that are going on to be head coaches it's all these other guys that start out on his staff go get a position coaching job somewhere else come back as a coordinator when you make the video 10 years from now about the full reach of the Andy Reid tree it's going to be a three-hour epic (laughs) he does take care of his people shifting gears slightly I want to zoom in on uh not as much on Patrick Mahomes, because again, we talked about him already. We know how good he is. I want to zoom in on the receiving core. And that sort of includes Travis Kelsey. Um, he's TE1. He's everybody's TE1. He will be TE1 probably until he retires, because he's one of the, not even five, not even three, one of the two best tight ends ever, right? Hmm. But looking beyond Travis Kelsey... At the receiving core, it's been a, a, a point of contention in Chiefs Kingdom this offseason, mainly because nobody knows what the <laughs> hell's going on. Uh, they want Kadarius Tony to be the number one. They want MVS to be the seldom used but still highly impactful deep threat. They want Sky Moore to evolve into the possession threat that they feel like they need now that Juju's moved on. 
Will all of those things actually happen? I'm not entirely sure yet. And I'm not saying that the uncertainty in the Chiefs receiving core is going to sink this offense because it certainly didn't do it last year when there was just as much, if not more, uncertainty. But I will say this. It's still Travis Kelsey and everybody else. I, mm-hmm. I still do not anticipate that Kadarius Tony is going to get anywhere near the workload that, say, Tyreek Hill got when he was the clear number one wide receiver. Not number one weapon, but number one wide receiver. Do I think he could get 1,000 yards? I think he could. <laughs> Am I comfortable with investing in him, investing in him Excuse me, as a surefire number one option? No, I, I, I don't think that I am. And in the same vein, I'm not super comfortable with investing in any of the Chiefs receiving core at this point, specifically for, say, fantasy. Like, Kadarius is going as wide receiver 38. Um, that's in the general vicinity of Deontay Johnson and George Pickens. I kind of feel like, given the choice, <laughs> I'd probably take either Johnson or Pickens. Not because I don't love the offense that Kadarius is in, but I just don't see the role right now. I, I don't I don't see him being the number one. I see him being a complimentary piece where, hey, it's third down. We need five yards. Go get me five yards. Travis is bracketed. He can do that. But I don't see the production that Tyreek used to get. They're just not the same player here. And I, I feel like the market has been struggling to not even struggling. I feel like the market has been desperate to value one of these Chiefs receivers in the top 40. And quite frankly, if I want Chiefs passing yardage, I'm just either going to draft Pat or I'm going to draft Travis. I don't I don't think anybody else is valuable enough for me to really step out on a ledge and go after him. The only reason we're having any of this conversation is because of Patrick Mahomes. Yes. If you take any quarterback ranked, say, 20th or lower in the NFL and insert them into this offense, just assume for a minute that they had familiarity with this offense and that they brought their skill set to Andy Reid's offense, Andy Reid calling in plays, with this group of wide receivers. It'd be like Houston last year or worse. It would be like a bottom five group. These, these guys are complementary receivers, all three of them in the lead roles, are complimentary receivers without Pat and Andy. The only reason we're having any of this conversation is because, well, come on, it's Patrick Mahomes. He's going to throw for 5,000 yards. Only twelve or 1,300 of those are going to go to Travis. The rest have to go somewhere. Mm-hmm. Where is that? It's the only reason we're having this discussion. It's not based on the merit of the wide receivers. And we are trying to... Uh, in the fantasy community, I think, push that onto Kadarius Tony. There is a want for him to rise and be that guy, and there is no evidence <laughs> in his career that that's going to happen. Matt Harmon, who runs the excellent Reception Perception site, did a bit on this this week about there is nothing in Kadarius Tony's past performance that indicates he is primed for a sudden rise, regardless of offense, position, priority in the target share, it's just not there. We're looking for it, struggling for it, trying to attach a label to it. It's just not a thing. I could see him being a number two or a number three, just like I could see Sky being a very good number two or an excellent number three. I could see MVS, again, as a complimentary piece, being the deep threat. 
none of them are Tyreek. Tyreek was a true number one alpha receiver who then went down to Miami and linked up with another true number one alpha <laughs> receiver. Um, it's just, it's not the same. And it, and that's nothing against Tony. You know, again, they, they picked him up from the Giants at a value, in my opinion. And I think he, he plays a solid role for them, but... I feel like people are just over-indexing on on the the logo on the helmet here, and I think the five thousand yards that we're expecting, other than with Travis, it's going to be five thousand in aggregate, right? It's going to be a bunch of guys getting a whole bunch of yards together, but not funneled into, you know, looking around the league, it's always like a, a top three, right? That's not going to be that way in, in Kansas City, especially for an offense that runs so much twelve and thirteen personnel, which they're probably going to do again this year. Like at most, there's going to be one to two receivers on the field anyway. So I don't know. I like I look at their valuations again. Um, Tony's wide receiver 38 on underdog right now. Sky's 54. MBS is wide receiver 69. Not that they aren't important role players for this team, but there's so many other receivers for other teams that have more defined roles and still with good quarterbacks in their own right that I would rather you know, take my money and, and, and invest in that. Uh, obviously, Mahomes is going at, at pick 21-ish. He's QB1. It's going to be that way from pole to pole. And Travis is going in the top seven picks at TE1. That's going to be pole to pole. If you really want to invest in Kansas City, take one of those two. Uh, side note, Pacheco is going as RB25. That I actually might invest a little in just because I think that this is an offense that when they get into low red zone situations, it used to be that they didn't have anybody that could punch it in when they were inside the five, so they had to do all the funky stuff with the trick plays and... Tap passes. You know, the do dos and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I feel like now they actually have a dude where they can give them the ball and say, go pound it in. Pacheco, just on touchdown opportunities alone, uh, I think might exceed RB25. So, again, it's Pat, it's Travis... It's Pacheco at their current ADPs. Everybody else, I don't really fucking care. Yeah, Pacheco, it's got to be touchdowns. He only got 830 yards last year. I can see that number rising a little bit this year, but he might not go over 1,000. His value will be in those red zone opportunities, and he's good there. Unless McKinnon gets all the red zone touches again and just ruins my life. But Well, <laughs> there's that as well. So generally the message, I think, for you know, Chiefs players outside of the two that you mentioned is buyer beware at your own risk. You're never really sure because we're never really sure. I'm not even sure Andy's sure right now who's going to get the lion's share of targets. That's not the way they run the offense. So from a pure fantasy perspective, there are a lot of other offenses, even if they're nowhere near as good a football team as the Chiefs, that I'll invest in their players because of the role they occupy, because of the target share they're probably guaranteed to get. It's not that way with Kansas City. Yeah, and again, we want to emphasize fantasy football and real football are two very different worlds. Yes. Uh, unfortunately, we can't make money off of real football as much as we can on fantasy football. So if you are doing best ball drafts this time of year, and usually this is the best time of year to do them, because most of these best ball winners for the season-long contest, like Best Ball Mania, which is $15 million in prize pool this year, by the way, uh, typically the winners for Best Ball Mania are drafted in either June or July. So now is the time to get on that. If you yourself are interested in checking it out, you can use promo code BOOTLEG on Underdog Fantasy. They'll match your deposit up to $100. 
you know, maybe you do believe in Kadarius Tony, yeah. and you do think that he's worth more than a, a wide receiver for valuation, and you want to rub it in our faces by winning $3 million. Please, Please do, so. do. Yeah. And then buy me a bottle of Ben Holiday and send it to me, because I can't get it out here. But sure, or two. Or two, or day. three, or five. You buy the whole distillery. You're, right. you're going to have enough money. But regardless, again, promo code bootleg. They'll match your deposit up to 100. You can use that on either Best Ball Mania or Pick'ems or whatever contest you see fit. Uh, there's a lot going on on Underdog, and we thank them for sponsoring not just this entire series. Series? Wow, Brett. You've had too many drinks today. Series? Series? Series. <laughs> but they've sponsored the whole show. Indeed, and the series rolls on with free agency. <laughs> uh, interestingly enough, one of the names in free agency that was quote-unquote lost is Carlos Dunlap, and there was just news today that he is open to a return to the Chiefs. Of course he is. Of course They're going to pay him like $5 million. Yeah, and he would have a role. He already knows the defense, and they have a very good chance of winning another ring, so why wouldn't you? So Carlos Dunlap is a uh, wait-and-see as to whether or not he's a true loss Orlando Brown, we talked about, moved on, of course, to the Bengals. Frank Clark goes to the Broncos. Uh, Juan Thornhill goes to the Browns. Andrew Wiley, the other tackle, moves on to the Commanders. Uh, Mikul Hardman goes to the Jets to go play with Aaron Rodgers and co. Juju Smith-Schuster, the aforementioned savior of the Chiefs or self-anointed savior of the Chiefs season. <laughs> Enemy of Darius Slay. Yes, <laughs> oh, yes. There's that. Moves on to the Patriots, so perhaps he can increase his uh hatred level around the league i'm not <laughs> sure uh and then kaylin saunders is the one i really want to talk about moves on from the chiefs to the saints uh only played 34.8 percent of the snaps but that has to do with more of the role he played he is an absolute disruptor we will talk about him when we get to the saints episode but it is going to be a bit of a loss for the chiefs of all the big names obviously thornhill's loss the tackles i think were planned frank clark had a very distinct role and brought pressure for them. But sort of just under that surface, Kalen Saunders played a really important role for this team. I think they have a plan for replacing him, but that is not a guarantee. He was a very valuable piece, even though his sort of snap share was not the typical sort of 50 or 70% of players that we're highlighting on these lists. I'm going to be kind of jumping around here real quick because I want to talk about um, the tackles that you mentioned that, that were planned. Uh, first things first, I do want to recap who they did bring back. Uh, you know, it was Blake Bell, uh, QB sneak extraordinaire. Derek Nottie, again, rotational piece. Yeah, they choose between Saunders and Nottie. They chose Nottie. Yep. Uh, Jarek McKinnon, excellent in the red zone for them. Great pass protector, role player at this point of his career, and a damn good one at that. Uh, Justin Watson they brought back. Tershawn Wharton, um, Nick Allegretti. Like, again, list goes on and on. A whole bunch of low-dollar role players, snap eaters. In regards to the tackles, because that was a planned departure, um, you know, Orlando, he wanted, the Orlando Brown saga has been interesting because he wanted <laughs> like tackle market shattering money, right? Yep. And the Chiefs weren't going to give it to him because he wasn't good enough to justify that. He wasn't even remotely good enough to justify that. And then, you know, I, I don't know what the Chiefs offer was, but I, I I don't think it was as high as the Bengals offer. And the Bengals offer wasn't that high. It was like, what, $16 million or something like that, right? Um, but what I found interesting was that, um, you know, Orlando was offered more money elsewhere but chose Cincinnati because he got to play left tackle. 
and that was really what you know when the rubber met the road what was really important to Orlando was I want to play left tackle I want to play the spot my dad played and it, it he got like 10 million less than what his initial contract demands were that Kansas City was not going to meet um and then meanwhile in Kansas City they signed Juwan Taylor who was a right tackle and they're like, no, he's going to be a left tackle for us. And so they were going to do the same kind of conversion that they did with Orlando. And then out of the blue, they signed Donovan Smith and be like, oh, no, 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 no. Donovan's our left tackle. We're moving Juwan back to right. And so it's like, okay, so we're spending, God, what was it, $20 million a year mm-hmm. on Juwan Taylor to be our right tackle. And then we brought in Donovan Smith, who was getting absolutely turnstiled in Tampa to be our left tackle at 3 million when we could have just had Orlando at 16. Uh, it doesn't seem bright to me. Like it doesn't seem clean and like I get that it was planned, but it feels like the plan kind of got fucked up along the way and it, it it almost like they didn't stick the landing. Like I can't imagine that they're okay with Donovan Smith being their left tackle, even as inconsistent as Orlando Brown was, over Orlando Brown. Because Orlando is better than Donovan Smith. Not to mention paying $20 million, again, top of market money for Jawan Taylor at right tackle. I don't I don't know. Does that make sense that none of this makes sense? Am I am I conveying my confusion properly? Because it just seems odd that that's how this all went down. I think you are correctly echoing the sentiments of many Chiefs fans as they have watched this saga throughout and said, no, don't pay him the money. Oh, wait, he's gone. But we got another guy and we're going to do the same thing. And he's worse. But he's moved. (laughs) And then we got another guy, but he's worse. And we're paying him less at the, you know, typically more high profile, high pay position. So we're absolutely going to draft a left tackle up high in the draft. Right, guys? No, no, (laughs) that's where it really starts to feel like, okay, so these things didn't go according to plan. And we'll talk about the draft in a little bit. But no, I think you are accurately conveying the situation, which has been uh, muddled, muddied (laughs) at best. Like, I absolutely think that the plan was Orlando and Wiley, you're gone. And there were reasons for that. Sure. I refuse to believe that the backup plan was... Juwan Taylor and Donovan Smith. There had to have been something else that was in the works that just didn't work out, right? Like, that that, that can't have been plan A. Or B or C. Or B or C. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's kind of like we were talking with the Raiders, like their quarterback plans. Like, that shit was cobbled together that, last minute. <laughs> that's what it feels like as you talk through that saga. That's the situation I think of is, no, we got a guy. We're sure that this is going to occur. Oh, that's not going to occur? No problem. We're going to pivot. Oh, whoops, his foot's broken. Oh, now what? And you start to see a franchise looking for stability at a position. It's very important. Quarterback and left tackle, both very important positions for two different franchises. And trying to come up with the best answer they can, which, again, is not the best answer. I don't know. They'll figure it out. They're the Chiefs. They always do. But at the same time, I'm like, please don't get Pat Hurt. Please, God, don't get Pat Hurt. Um, now, they did bring in Charles Amenahu for $8 million, which was a signing I adored. I love Charles Amenahu at $8 million. That's a great deal for them. So good. 
Uh, Mike Edwards at three million was a great value. Another Buccaneer, um, and at three million for Mike Edwards, I'm I'm good with that. Yeah. Uh, Drew Tranquil also at three million. I thought he would get more. I'm not saying Drew Tranquil's a world beater, but I thought he would get more in the current linebacker market. Yeah, the that. mid market for middle linebacker right now is around five or six. Yeah, and that's twice as much as he's getting. He's played, uh, I think he outplayed his status with the Chargers when we both assumed that he would get compensated at that sort of number two middle linebacker level, and he got half of that. So, And then Richie James at 1.2, again, another one of these receivers where I'm like, there's a lot of guys to play the same role, and they're going to be rotating quite a bit. Like Richie James is a spark plug. Uh, you know, he's really explosive, really fast. Uh, you know, can give him the ball in space in a variety of ways, and he'll just kind of go. Um, you know, player that we've talked about repeatedly on this podcast being, I don't want to say he's like underrated. Like, it's not like he's a, a top, you know, 100 receiver or anything like that. But as a role player, he can give you some explosive plays, then go back to the bench, hang out for a little while, come back on, give you 30. Special teamer. Special teamer. Uh, like, you he's, know, he's he, got a good role for 1.2 million provide some electricity but i'm with you that you start to stack guys like that and you're like okay there's one of those roles and you have three of those guys on your roster you're gonna have to pick one and look richie james at 1.2 is is not gonna break the bank if he ends up you know flipping between the practice squad and the regular like that's not a thing but you start to look at it and go all right are you just trying to paper over the hole and you're gonna pick one or are you really gonna roster you know two or three of those guys that feel like they occupy the same slot in the receiver room. Just building an entire offense out of tight ends and gadget receivers. Just That's cause. right. That's right. Uh, all right. That brings us to the draft um, where they added another receiver in this class who, uh, to put it bluntly, I did not agree with that pick whatsoever for Rasheed Rice, but everything else for the most part I was super cool with. It's just that one, that one receiver pick where I'm like, Andy, I would love to know why. I want to see the role that they envisioned for him and whether or not it meshes with what we saw on film with him in college. He did have strengths. There is a reason he was considered uh, as early on one of the top receivers in this draft. I think as the process went on, he ended up being slotted down. Not, of course, because he'd played any extra games or done anything worse. It's that other folks found things they liked more about other receivers. They occupied the top spot. That ends up pushing him down the board. It is the one pick in this draft that I'm like, eh, I don't love it. For folks at home, by the way, we're talking about Rasheed Rice, who they took it at 55 overall. We'll get to Felix, who we love. We'll get to Wanya, who we love. But the Rasheed Rice pick, I just want to hit on first it's a weird thing to start off with uh because it you know in terms of emphasis what you say first sort of sticks with people and they'll think oh they didn't like the draft this was literally the only spot in this draft that i didn't like or didn't see the plan for where he was picked and the reason is because it was round two pick 55 that's a premium pick and if you stick your top picks you usually do pretty well in the draft the further down you go the more leeway you have to take shots, lottery tickets, injury risks, whatever else. But when you do it at 55, when there are other players who we liked better on the board for what we see as the Chiefs needs in this receiving core, it leaves a taste in your mouth. And not going to say I like the pick. I didn't. Don't project uh, an ideal or exceptional, what I would call a ceiling future for the player. Doesn't mean he's going to be bad. I hope he proves me wrong. 
but based on early returns, wasn't wild about that one particular pick. At least we love Felix. Felix yeah, is no. awesome. I'll pivot back to round one. Pick 31, the edge. Felix Enidike Uzama out of Kansas State. Love this player. I unabashedly love this player. Uh, in the lead up to the draft, I highlighted him in several of our podcasts. Strangely enough, I got with the KCSN guys the Sunday after the draft. So draft ends on Saturday. Sunday, they were recording a podcast at the Holiday Distillery. I uh, got a chance to talk to them before and after that. Uh, rode out there with BJ and I pulled Craig Stout, who you mentioned earlier in the podcast. Shout out to Craig, one of our longtime buddies, and said, what did you think of the pick? Because I fully expected him to be like, yeah. And he went, mm. And I was like, oh, really? Mm? He's like, I went back to his film, watched a couple of games. This one particularly ended up on the ground more than I'd like. He seemed cool on the pick, kind of like we are. Whelmed. About Rishi <laughs> Rice, whereas we're both fired up about Felix. We really like his prospects. I think he fits very well with that mold of what Spagnuolo wants. Uh, we'll see, just as we will with any draft pick, whether or not it works out. But we are high on his prospects. Rasheed Rice was their pick in round two at 55. We talked about him a little bit. And then at round three, they wait all the way until round three to sort of address this tackle conundrum that we touched on earlier. Pick 92, they get Wanya Morris, the tackle out of Oklahoma, who we talked with with Brandon Thorne previously uh, before the draft. And Wanya's a guy that I think has high potential to develop. And that's what Brandon said is talking to his coach at Oklahoma, what his coach, his line coach at Oklahoma said was, I wish I had him for longer. He was a transfer, I think from Tennessee, don't quote me, but he said he moved, he moved the needle so much in the year and a half he was here. I wish I had another year with him because this is an ascending player. And the Chiefs heard that as well, I'm sure. Uh, physically, he is a dominant player in stretches, has a ton of power. Ton of um, length, too. Yeah. All the measurables are there, and you see flashes of great play. Now, he has to continue on that path or that curve of development to reach those goals. But, you know, his line coach at Oklahoma thinks he can. Brandon Thorne thinks he can. Um, I have high hopes for him, but they waited until 92 to bring in a tackle who is not going to start this year. He's not. He's not slotted in. He could win the job still, but in the early depth charts, this is a guy that's a backup. And I think a lot of Chiefs fans were like a lot of Bears fans last year with like, you, you picked a receiver in the third and you picked <laughs> that receiver, not in the first. Like, what are you doing with the tackle decision? So nothing against Wanya. We think he's a good player. I actually am pretty high on his prospects. Again, I thought it was a good pick. Every pick except that round two pick I liked in this draft. Round four, pick 119, Shamari Connor, the safety out of Virginia Tech. Love this guy. Mm -hmm. Absolute spark plug, special teams demon. I think will play a role on their base defense, and the Chiefs have typically done this. Picked safeties from the mid to later rounds, developed them on special teams, moved them into a primary role in the defense. You know, Sorensen was like that. He was picked much later well, down. They, they run three safety packages more than anybody. And these guys work out. I think Shamari Connor landed in a great spot for him and the team that picked him. Round five pick 166, the edge BJ Thompson that we saw at the Shrine Bowl out of Stephen F. Austin. I'm going to let you wax poetic about BJ Thompson. He's so freaky. He's so freaking athletic. Uh, you know, this is somebody who, again, spent, I believe it was six years in college, started Baylor, ended up at Stephen F. Austin. Really lanky, you know, he's 6'5", <laughs> I think he came in at 240 by draft time. Uh, 
legit 4.4 speed, 40 inch vertical, crazy shuttles, like every measurable you can think of, he's jaw dropping. Um, and just the way he moved, like we saw him in person at Shrine uh, and he was doing um, like zone drop drills and he moves like a DB and he's 6'5", two, well at that time I think he was like 230, but um, and he's bulked up since then, but like he moves like a DB and they don't really have a whole lot of edges that they can I mean they could drop them but I'm not saying they're <laughs> gonna be good at it right like you know Carl yeah. Loftus turns like he's a, a battleship going through a glacier uh BJ is a, a very different type of edge where if we're bringing um a pressure package is uh, a pressure package that relies on you know say bringing a slot corner and then dropping out an edge to relate to the number two and pick him up as, as a hot zone defender we're not doing that with George Karloftis, you know. We, they, they weren't doing that with Tano Passanio. Like, <laughs> no, but they could do it with B.J. Thompson because he's a fucking freak. Like, they could even do it a little bit with Felix, but B.J. more so, right? And so I, I don't think he's going to be um, a polished pass rusher early on because he's not. Like, even though he spent a long time in college, he's still not polished at all as a pass rusher, but he he's incredibly explosive. He's incredibly fluid, and I think just – Giving somebody like that that has tools to Spags and and coaching him up, I love what he can be in the future. He's an older player, so you know I, I'm not expecting he's going to be around for ten years. But if you can get like five or six good years out of him while he's still in his athletic prime and he is a freak athlete, that's great for them. I love that pick, especially getting him in the fifth round. In the sixth round, they went right back to the Shrine Bowl, got Keandre Coburn, who you know getting lost Colin Saunders. Okay, slotting Keandre Coburn, same role, and you know roughly the same size. Actually, Coburn might even be a bigger. Um, but like, if you just need a, a tree stump of a human being to go stop the run for thirty percent of your snaps, sign me up. He's great for that. Love that pick, the Keandre Coburn pick. Probably my favorite, certainly my favorite pick in the last half of the draft because it is an absolute. One for one trade, lose a very good, I'll still say young defensive tackle. I know Kalen Saunders is 27. Replace him with an, another absolute tree stump who is awesome. I think underrated again, very good at that role. Um, very little drop off. And that's hard for me to say because I really like Kalen Saunders as a player, but I think Keandre Coburn is exceptionally good at duplicating many of the things he did. Then in the final round, round seven, pick 250, they go get Nick Jones, big corner out of Ball State, who plays a lot like a lot of other big corners that Spags knows how to use. So it feels like he is a very good developmental piece for their system. Again, you know, we're talking about all the picks here. There's one we were like, eh, the rest of them see the path to playing time, see what they mean to do with them. A little bit less for me with BJ. Uh, because he's not like their other pieces, so they're going to have to use him differently. They typically haven't had that role. If you're asking me like, oh, so who's BJ going to like follow around in practice and learn from? I, I, I'm not sure. Legereus Sneed, maybe? Like the further outside you move BJ with his length and athleticism and burst, the better he did. If he was taking on like slot receivers or tight ends, he was whipping them. As soon as he got inside the tackles, he just doesn't have the sand in his pants to get around them yet. So it's like, what do you do with that guy? And you're right. It's a guy that they can drop and do other things with, but they haven't done that in their defense. So it's going to take some adjustment on terms of the team. And it makes me a little bit less sure about the sort of, oh, he dropped into a spot that's awesome for him because he's just like, 
he's not just like anybody they have. I would be remiss, by the way, if I didn't mention that uh, the UDFA class uh, might be even more impressive than the draft class. They got no fewer than four players here who I think could legitimately make the roster uh, and maybe even be significant contributors in the future, at least on special teams. Uh, Daneric Prince is a lightning bolt of a running back, legit 4-4 speed, pretty darn big too, which seems like the Chiefs, uh, when they see big running backs that run 4-4, they say, gimme, gimme, gimme. Uh, he he fits their type. Nico Remigio, returner extraordinaire, and also, again, another slot weapon who's good after the catch. Yep. <laughs> they, they, they love their gadget receivers. Uh, but he is an electric returner that... Uh, you know, I, I wish he wasn't hurt during Shrine Bowl week because I, I would have loved to see him on the field. But he had interviews with all 32 teams because everybody was interested in, in him at minimum as a returner. Um, just an incredibly explosive weapon on special teams. Uh, Isaiah Moore, a linebacker that you and I both loved a lot. Uh, Drake Thomas, his teammate, uh, went to where did he go? The Raiders. The Raiders. That's right. Uh, we just talked about talked that. about him yesterday. Um, and we love both of them. And, and the fact that both of them went undrafted, we were surprised by that. But he's an absolute hammer against the run. Uh, I, again, I, I would love to know why he didn't get drafted even on day three. Like I thought, you know, starting fifth, sixth round, we would have seen his name called, ended up not getting drafted at all. He's going to make the team, I think, in my opinion. Uh, and then Khalif, I, I always wondered how to pronounce this. Is it Hallis, Hallisey? I think it's High Lassie. High Lassie out of Western Kentucky. Uh, he was one of the last corners that I got to. I had a priority UDFA grade on him. Mm-hmm. So, again, I didn't expect him to get drafted. But, I, I again, when I say priority UDFA, I mean, please get him in the building and see what he's got. Luckily, the Chiefs did. I don't have any contract information on him, but I bet his bonus was pretty pretty substantial. He's got a lot of length, uh, very tall corner. Um, and, you know, saw a little bit of him, saw the burst and thought, he was draftable. I had a low draftable grade on him. But when you look at a UDFA class like this, Daneric Prince, big guy, fast, explosive, you know, and in some ways runs like Isaiah Pacheco. Not quite as angry. Doesn't have that sort of but that abs- high cut, just high cut bolt of lightning. Super fast, yeah. good size. Um, not the shiftiest necessarily, um, but tremendous speed and game breaking ability. Nico Remigio, great guy, great player. I think he's a better receiver than people give him credit for. He's crafty, small. Again, he fits in that sort of <laughs> throw him in the bucket with Richie James and mix and stir with a lot of other receivers on this roster. So his path to playing time is a little bit more convoluted. But if I had to bet on a person uh, and a player in a role, as long as he can stay healthy, I'd love, love, love Nico Remigio. And Isaiah Moore felt very Nick Bolton light to me. In the pre-draft process, I thought they had a lot of similarities from their college game. Nick Bolton has continued to develop in a way that has surprised me. He's more mobile. He's much better against the pass and going backward than he was coming out. Um, That is not Isaiah Moore's strength right now, but he is an absolute twitch, trigger, hammer going forward. I think he can learn a lot from Nick Bolton. So again, a great landing spot for him. And if you get all of that, not to mention a guy like Truman Jones, the edge out of Harvard who just has great size. And if you're looking for a sort of spags you know genetic clone of what he likes at a defensive end that guy could develop as well as a practice squad player that's a big haul to pull out of udfa it's a great udfa class um not all teams 
pull great UDFA groups, as we've seen. We've been through a bunch of franchises this year. The Chiefs were one of the ones that did. And that brings us to the final report card, as well as our ceiling and floor projections. Report cards where we give uh, either an up, a down, or an even grade to four different categories. Front office, coaching, offensive talent, and defensive talent. Front office, I'm going to go with even, just because, uh, you know, everything we talked about with the tackle saga um, and, you know, the draft we liked overall, but I, I don't know, the Rasheed Rice pick still kind of... (laughs) See, you shouldn't have talked about it first. Bothers me. Yep. Um, so I'm going to give them even. I'm going to be generous and just say fine, even keel because they did get some some nice pieces. Like they they did pick up a Menahu and Veach is doing a nice job in what I would call late empire team building. Right. Mm-hmm. He's done all the heavy core listing. He's got his quarterback. He's assembled pieces, and now, as any successful team will do, he's got to sell some of those pieces off. You can't pay everybody. And he's doing a nice job, I think, of sustaining that success. And for that, neutral is not a negative, right? He is holding the line, and the line right now is very good. They just won the Super Bowl. Coaching, uh, I, I, I guess we can go down there just because we, or at least slightly down, just because we like Eric Bieniemy, right? Um, and I think anytime you you lose Eric Bieniemy, regardless of what capacity he was involved in the play calling like I would rather have him in the room than not yeah so uh, you know I guess if we're just comparing this year's staff to last year's staff even though it's largely the same there's still sans be enemy so I'd still give like slightly down there but as long as Andy's there and Spag's there they're gonna be fine I think as long as Andy's in place it's a very slight down but we're just gonna note it offensive talent roughly even uh there have been some names changed but the core remains the same, i.e. Pat, Travis, in the interior offensive line. We could have argued for slightly down there just because, again, the tackle fiasco was kind of weird. Not even fiasco. Tackle situation ship was kind of weird. But on the whole, even because the core of it's intact. Uh, defense, though, up. You know, the young players are in year two and year three now. You're adding a Menahu. Ideally, they're going to get Chris Jones signed pretty quick here. Again, we're recording this around mid-June, so maybe by the time this gets posted, he gets signed. But uh, I would imagine the talent on defense this year is going to be the same as last year plus a few extra pieces, which means they're going to be at least a solid defense like they were last year and potentially even better. Feels that way to me. I think those grades all line up with the way I see it. Veach doing a nice job of sustaining the coaching staff largely doing a nice job of sustaining. I think they were lucky to retain Bienemy for as long as they did. He finally moves on. That feels like no matter what, it's going to be a small hit. But again, the overall scheme of things, as long as Andy Reid's running things, I don't think it's really going to matter. Offense, yep, stays neutral. Defense, that secondary having another year is a big deal. They got a lot of nice players that played well as rookies, and now they just have another year of experience in Spag's system. Plus, you add some pieces like Menahu. Feels like the defensive talent's going up. Last but not least, we have floor and ceiling. Uh, shocker, ceiling's high. 13 wins is what you and I both project the Chiefs to have as their ceiling, which sounds maybe uh, conservative because they won 14 games last year. But it's it's hard to only lose four games in the NFL, especially in a uh, what we think might be semi-resurgent AFC West. 
I think 13 is fair. I think Chiefs fans would also accept a 13 win season. It's kind of poor for the course at this par for the course at, at this point for them. Uh, for floor, I refuse to do a single digit floor. Um, like even years where Pat did sustain some injuries, like they were still winning games and being a great team. So I I kind of. I'm kind of in I'll believe it when I see it mode at this point that this could ever be like an eight or nine win team. I'm going to put the floor at 10, just assuming that that's about as low as this thing can go. I'll dip into the single digits. I'm going to go nine, but this is the part where I'm going to say everything we just did for the last hour doesn't freaking matter. Why is that? Pat. Yeah, if Pat's right. on the field. That's right. If fine. Pat Mahomes is on the field... I don't care if they win 13. I don't care if they win 10. If they make the playoffs and Pat Mahomes is on the field, they have a chance to win the Super Bowl. End of story. Until further notice, and it's what we said last year. It's the reason we predicted them to win the division last year was like, look, if it's Andy and Pat, they got a chance. It can be Pat and 52 other guys. We've talked about how good the talent is around him, but it doesn't matter, right? It's Pat. Mm -hmm. And Pat is going to drive this team to success as long as he's there and healthy. And that's kind of the reason that all this fun stuff that we just spent an hour talking about that you and I really enjoy doesn't really matter. As long as they've got Mahomes there and he's playing well, this team will be a playoff threat and a Super Bowl threat. So I'll dip in. I'll say nine because if Pat's not there, yeah, they're still going to win a bunch of games, but they're not going to win as many. And I won't be betting on them uh, <laughs> at the end of the year. I feel like uh, the Chiefs episode every year for the next 10 years is going to be the same. Of, like, <laughs> Pat Mahomes, pretty fucking good. Yeah. yeah. All right. Let's get out of here. See you next year. <laughs> yeah. The danger is if we say that enough times, people will watch 10 minutes and go, oh, it's the same as last year. They <laughs> you probably watch, just replay last year's episode. Won't watch the rest of the episode. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow with our AFC West predictions. Spoiler alert. Chiefs in the division uh but there's a bunch of other stuff to discuss you know who's the defensive player of the year in the division who's the offense player of the year rookie of the year coach of the year and we're gonna do our mid season for us mid off season first stack of all the power scores so every team that we reviewed which is half the teams in the league now up to this point we're gonna slot them in where they ranked in the final power score leave the other slots open so you can guess which teams from the remainder of this season we'll put in there. But it's the first sort of roadmap to power score uh, that we've shared with you all. So come back for that as well. And if we've properly charged you up as a Chiefs fan, which we hope we have, we've been gassing them up for over an hour and just said they're probably going to win 13 games. Uh, check out our partner, homageclothing.com. Some of the softest t-shirts and hoodies. I love this one. As soon as I put this t-shirt on tonight, I was like, man, I want them to make our t-shirts. Shout out to Homage. Please make our t-shirts. Uh, <laughs> but if you're a Chiefs fan or a fan of any of the other teams in this division, check out Homage.com. Any purchase you make using the link in the description helps support the podcast. And it's great stuff. You'll be pulling it out of your drawer first every time. I promise. All right. We'll be back in 24 hours with our AFC West look back or predictions. Well, both technically. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to go pour myself some more of this because it's really good stuff. Uh, ben Holiday, by the way, if you're watching, please... Um, Tell me how I can ship this across the country because I am running uh, dangerously low on my dangerously supply low. and I need more bourbon. Cheers to you. Man.